Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Neil and Jordan podcast, the uh, podcast where two comedians talk like experts on subjects they are not experts on. This podcast is sponsored by Crush Organics CBD oil and CBD oil products, crushorganics.com. That's crush with a K. Use the code Neil for 40% off. I've been on their gummies lately. Good stuff. They taste great and uh, they're very relaxing, very calming, and they're very tranquil. Well, they cause a feeling of tranquility within the consumer, and uh, you should go to crushorganics.com. That's crush with a K. Use the code Neil for 40% off. If you haven't used the oil before, start off with a uh, two or three drops, see how you feel after a few hours, and it's the perfect gift. So crushorganics.com. Uh, I've got shows every week in Sydney, every month in Melbourne, and uh, March 20th, first uh, Newcastle show. In fact, by the as this podcast is going out, I think I'll be doing a show in Melbourne, February 6th. I believe that's when this podcast is going out. Jordan has some shows on as we've got an Adelaide show coming up soon. Is that for the Fringe? Yeah, it's for the Fringe. I shouldn't do Fringes anymore. I don't know why I do. Sorry. Anyway, check it out. Uh, I'm sure there's a great <laughs> array of acts there. Well, nothing and else. I probably shouldn't be laughing while saying that. Nothing else happens in Adelaide except for hey. the Fringe, bro. Uh, well, what about that uh, race car thing the race car thing mad may whatever it's called mad march isn't that amazing i I love how much adelaide puts shit on itself people in adelaide are exceptionally cool i don't want to live there but it gives them a good (laughs) attitude i think they out of all the places because they are educated yes the first free state yeah they weren't settled by convicts right no and they're the they do have capital. that exceptionally grating aristocracy that exists in Adelaide, though, both for the vineyards and the fact that they were free settlers. But the average pleb in Adelaide, awesome. Uh, that red light street that they have is abnormally oh, vibrant. Red square. Red square. Hey, good old the red square, bruh. They wouldn't talk like that in Adelaide. <laughs> uh, they would. There's a, quite a few shisha bars on Red Square. <laughs> really? Yeah, dude. Ah. Yeah. I, That's their primary food there. I think when I was a, I can't if, uh, remember if I was 19 or 20, but there was a um, there was a club there called XL Super Club. <laughs> it's so cringe. But they were playing my kind of music, which is early 2000s gangster rap, and it was That's a uh, thoroughly enjoyable time. That place still exists, I think, too. Oh, there you go. Still busting out Ludacris. Excel Super Club. Go uh, visit that one. Uh, I met a few people. This would have been eight years ago now. And uh, if they happen to be listening to this, hope you're doing well. <laughs> hope you're doing well, boys. That was a, that was a big night. That's how the- Okay. Look, I do meet nice people in every city. Uh. But Adelaide is exceptionally nice. Every yeah. time I go there, they're like, friendly Geordies, come out for a drink, man. No, thanks. You're coming for a drink, and I'm shouting. You can't go down can't Red say, Square. Can't say no to that. No. I don't like that uh, there's very a few degrees of separation. This is what, population 1.2 million. Everyone knows someone who knows someone. That so does freak me out I don't as well. Like, I don't like that. No. Uh, I'm sure there's some embarrassing stories. Maybe that's why everyone's <laughs> a legend there, though. Maybe. Yeah, you have to be. Yeah, I was thinking about this today. Uh, you can't be a cunt when you lived in a small community. No. You get, fa- you get fa- found out. You're a man. witch. Yeah. Outcast. Yeah. Perth is a bit like that as well, except for Perth is a little more ready to go. And they're- Women ready to go. 
it's just, you know, you go down their red light district and you don't want to go back down there again. You just see people punching the shit out of each other. It's a bit too- Where the fuck have you gone, bro? In Perth? You, yeah. You haven't been there? I've been there, but I've never seen their red light district where people are punching each other. No? Well, maybe that's just Perth in general. Maybe it is just Perth in general. I wouldn't be surprised if there's guys in white collars punching the shit out of each other at the CBD at 9am on a Monday. Just sounds very Perth, doesn't it? Yeah. Darwin. I've never- The real outskirts. Never been to Darwin. Have you ever done a show in Darwin? No, and I don't plan to. I don't want to do a show to a bunch of soldiers in an air hangar. <laughs> That's why I don't All want to right. go to Townsville either. No offense. But I think that my Man. manager's forcing me. One of the be- Some of the best shows I've done have been in Townsville. Well, I've only done two there. They were great. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. There were definitely a lot of army boys there, but uh, yeah. they were a great audience. Okay, well, that does change my mind a lot. I'm just basing that purely off of going to Cairns once, and that was the worst show I've ever done. I did a Cairns show for the first time ever in 2019. That was that was also fantastic. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Any any Queensland show I've ever done has been great. Brisbane's always been terrific. Yeah. Brisbane's well, knock it out of the park stuff. All of them in Queensland have always been amazing. And uh, people are really friendly, laugh at everything. Uh, so, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they have the same attitude as Newcastle, know, except Newcastle's a little bit harsher and meaner. But yes. Queensland does like to be paid out. Well, Adelaide everywhere. and Queensland like being paid out. Yeah. You can't do enough. If you just went up to Adelaide for an hour straight and went, Oi, you are a shit city. <laughs> Everybody here sucks and um, you, you have like a crap university in terms of the UAI. <laughs> And you, you make fun of the what, what's the suburb there? Everyone, I think Elizabeth is the. Tell me in the comments if I got that right. That's the that's the suburb everyone makes fun of there. It's such a it's such an easy trope, but man, everyone loves it. it. You it's, have to do it. They every go famous comedian, even when they come to Sydney, because Chris Rock was doing a show and he just mentioned Blacktown, and everyone started yeah! laughing <laughs> because he was saying. <laughs> Which was funny. And I asked, where are all the black people? And someone said, Blacktown. I'm like, what? <laughs> it, was just, it was very funny. And <laughs> so you just, it's, it's such an easy um, laugh, but it works every time, man. You go to any town or city in Australia, you're like, all right, where's the, where's the shit area? This one. Oh, you're just going to mention it. You don't even have to put a joke into it. You just, if someone's being a bit rowdy in the crowd, you just say, oh, well, insert shit suburb is in the house tonight. People are like, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, tricks of the mm-hmm. trade behind the curtain. <laughs> that, ladies and gentlemen, is your spanner. Can't do much without that. Mm-hmm. That's classic staple. As soon as you figured that out, I think that the last piece of the puzzle falls into place. Yeah, that's all you need. That's hey. all you need. You, know. you need to learn the shittest suburb of the place you're in. That's or it. Learn the shittest sub, the shittest suburbs all throughout Australia. Make a video about it, and then you can have a career. Yes. Learn from the man. There you go. Hey, I want to. I got this email from a listener, and uh, I want to read it out because it's very nice. That's nice. Okay. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I like the variety of topics and 
weight of such topics, interesting stuff. She listens to it at the gym. And she was talking a bit about she? the sound. Yeah, I know. That's why. And she's like, as a female, I'm interested to know if you actually have 10 female listeners. Because if you do, that makes me feel kind of elite. They love it, don't they? <laughs> the very few female listeners we have yeah. like being shouted out as the very few. And as a cis straight female, watching two guys in a fist fight does not even get me a little bit wet. That was amazing that they all needed to comment on that and say, no, it doesn't. <laughs> did we? I can't remember. Did we say that we thought it would? Now I can't remember. It sounds like something that we would we say. We probably would have said yes. something like that. I don't think that we would have taken the position that- Actually, no, it would have been because oh. every time I hear that, I'm like, what? Not even a bit weird. <laughs> in a film setting. By the way, we must have been talking about it in a film setting. I'm usually just wondering okay. how they filmed it. <laughs> just for the extra comments, what about this? Martial arts, does that get you wet? Nah, don't you know about the male and the female gaze yet, Jordan? This is what the uh, Gen Z's talking about all over TikTok. What? So the male gaze is what men perceive as attractive in men and the female gaze is what females actually perceive as attractive in men. So men usually look at... Uh, Attributes associated with uh, masculinity, strength, muscles, uh, dominance, leadership, if you will. And uh, females, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what they look at. But apparently Harry Styles in a dress is Do very Do they think hot. that's attractive? See, yeah, that's I always wonder. And then they get mad. They always stop questioning what females find attractive. And I'm like, do you really, like, deep down, are you like, that is fucking hot? Okay, or are you, Final is question. it hot because it's Harry Styles? That's the question. Like if it was the the just a, a guy at the pub, a fat guy at the pub, nosed, yeah, with a in a dress, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a disfigured fat man in a dress. You yes. wet? <laughs> yeah, you're gonna get that. You're gonna get wet over that. All right, Harry Styles in a dress. What are you getting more moist over? That or Bruce Lee kicking someone's ass artfully? I think that will depend on class and age. I think older women would find uh, I'm going to get... Oh, then again, I don't know. Bruce Lee is a very small Asian man. Yeah, they don't like that, do they? No. We learned about that in the last podcast. Yes, and that's not an opinion of the male gaze. That is... You can... Uh, that, that is an opinion of the female gaze. statistical, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a clear... Uh, there's clear statistical evidence for that one. You have to read this book called Hormonal, man. I talk about it all the time on Sex Cells. Two people have read it. The two people who have read it have immediately messaged me saying it was a life-changing book. You have to read it. You Hormonal remind me of that by Marty Hasselton. Okay. Okay, you just have to read this book. She was on Sam Harris a couple of years ago. And um, just look, the first couple of chapters is annoying. But then it gets into studies she does. And, man, it'll blow your mind. Give me one. Okay, well, uh, a woman based on where she is in her cycle will find different attributes in a man attractive. So if she's ovulating, right. uh, she will mm. be far more attracted to stereotypically masculine mm. traits mm. and uh, vice versa mm. if it's a different time in her cycle. Mm. Uh, men perceived more masculine men as a threat when they, they didn't even know if their uh, female was uh, ovulating, but there was, they, they smelt it from pheromones so subconsciously they they knew if their partner was ovulating and then they were showed pictures of uh 
men and were asked to rate them whether they were a threat. And they perceived men who, again, showed more masculine features as a bigger threat. Um, based on when a woman is in a cycle will completely change what she wears. And it will also, if she's ovulating, she's much more likely to want to go out, far less likely to want to eat. And she wants to travel more. She wants to be adventurous. There's all, this makes evolutionary sense, I suppose, if you think about it that way. And there's actually, the book theorized, I mean, they did some studies here. It's been like three years since I've read it now, but there was one where it showed that uh, at a certain point in a woman's cycle, she's much more likely to like, be very strict about cleaning the house and they theorize that that is when it is likely she is going to become pregnant and she doesn't want bacteria or germs to get you know to infect the uh the fetus and as a result are far more likely to want to clean and to clean very well so there's actually an evolutionary basis to women wanting to clean <laughs> take that tiktok but, but uh read the book because uh I could be, it's been a long time. I just distinctly remember of all the relationship <laughs> books I read, that one blew my mind. I've just never thought about the world the same way since I read that book. Is the upshot that the way women think is a lot more fluid than the way yes. men think? Yes. De 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 yeah, de definitely. I think. I don't know. You, I don't know if you want me to say your name, but you tell us. Email me. Yep. <laughs> what is that percentage of women listening to this? What actually is, last I look, I think it was 15%. Chicks. Or maybe 10%. It's it's not much, but we get like in the tens of thousands uh, of listeners. Yeah, so like there's like a thousand 2, who do listen. Yeah. So no, there's not 10. There's not 10. No. Wow. And you know what else as well? <laughs> It'll be only the people that are giving their sex out to YouTube. <laughs> Wait, what? Well, most of the time you just go on, don't you? Do most people have a YouTube account? I know we do. But unless you want to troll someone or you wanted to start up a parody song thing in year nine and it didn't pan out, why right. else would you get one? Oh, wait, so what do you say? What's this got to do with our listenership? I think there's more of the, um, the, the pussy goers that, that are listeners. <laughs> They call it again? Women, natural. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think there might be maybe 20%. Pussy So, goes. the point is you're not special. Get over yourself. But thank you for listening and writing it. Did you have any points or is that just pretty much it, that she well, is a woman and she's a fan? Yeah, I just thought that was a cool email that I wanted to read out. Well, I, it was a blow my mind moment because it's so, I'm so used to, okay, we've got someone called Derek. Oh, fuck, I'm not supposed to read their name out. Um, yeah, anyway, he wants to know uh, about making more friends. <laughs> yeah, we do get a lot of questions about <laughs> Yeah, well. Um, you, because that one is. podcast you did ages. I remember when it went about first five podcasts and you did one about, it was just called fun, I think. And you were like, man, how do you have fun? <laughs> so robotic. <laughs> yeah. It but, really um, freaks me out that that – it was the great. most accurate comment I've ever gotten. It was the one that cut deepest. I remember on Jordan Shanks, and it was, again, one of the chicks listening, always the most cutting. Because they just – they are. They're perceptive about people in a way that men just can't be bothered being perceptive about. <laughs> Which was just like – true. 
I like to think that Jordan is an alien trying to figure out how to be a person. I was like, uh. <laughs> that's a, that one that's a fucking cut. That is an astute observation. <laughs> that, 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 you even look like one, bro. No. <sighs> right to the core of my plasma being. <laughs> wow. Well, do you got another rider there? That? Well, this one's a question. Do you want to? Do you want to get to this one? Yeah. Okay, so question, Honey and Jordan, long-time fan of the show. My name is... I... Oh, for fuck's sake. Oh, I do, wait, I do need to remain semi-anonymous. <laughs> Why'd you fucking say that then? All right, well, we'll... Uh, we'll cut it out. We'll cut that out. But um, this is the usual. So, basically, we started reading out the question where he expressed his name and then he said, I need to remain anonymous. So, uh, there's probably a cut in the podcast cutting back to me now, which might be awkward, but that's that's his fault. <laughs> okay. I feel both of you will be able to answer this quite well and look at it from a macro and micro point of view. On the show, you both speak of taking personal responsibility and Jordan, of course, a big fan of public services, e.g. hospitals and shit like that. I assume you like them, Neil, but don't want to put words in your mouth. What are EG hospitals? Oh, is he saying, oh, example. I thought there's like a specific hospital called an EG. Yes, I do support uh, publicly funded hospitals. Um, Damn. Neil is out there with all the unpopular opinions today. Oh, I'm a cuck, bro. I'm a leftist cuck <laughs> on that issue. Cuck. You know? <laughs> I just said it, bro. I don't Holy shit. In theory, the, the system where it's like it's public and then if you want like a luxury bed, you can pay for private. That sounds good. Well, that is what we have. Yeah. Yeah. So, in theory, that's a good system. <laughs> so, yeah, theoretically, that's good. Theoretically. But then after multiple videos of yours, that's, that doesn't seem to be how it actually works. No, fuck no. It never does, does it? Nothing ever theoretically <laughs> okay. works. So, my question is, where does government take over control of the population and act on behalf of the nation for the greater good? That's a very good question. An example would be lockdowns and mask mandates on the Cancel Me Now podcast. Shout out Isaac Butterfield. Jo Jordan jokingly said more lockdowns. On a macro level, lockdowns help to reduce the spread of COVID. However, on a micro level, they can be detrimental to individuals' mental and physical health. All anecdotal evidence I've witnessed in my role and through the media. So where is the line of government responsibility and personal responsibility? Can both exist simultaneously? Uh, another example would be the pension and the dole. This example is more ongoing in comparison to the spicy cold example. Quite a heavy question with lots of nuance, I'm sure. But if anyone can do it, it's you two stooges. Okay, oh, that's lovely. So that Thank is a you, very stooge. loaded question. Oh, again, <laughs> love the show on both of your individual channels. Hope to see you both tour again, so I can wait in line like a simp to get a photo with you for the pool room. Good on you, man. Legend. Really look forward to your sweaty arm around my neck. Well, straight off the bat, uh. I am passionate about personal responsibility because I think it's an ethos you should try and live by. But that does not mean you should necessarily vote for a party that also um, professes those values because if you are in the position to uh, try and aim for personal accountability and personal responsibility, that's something you should be striving towards. But yes, we are all human. Humans don't always make rational choices. Some people are born into circumstances that they can't control. And I, uh, of course, believe that there should be a, a relatively generous 
well thought out safety net with commensurate checks and balances to uh, take into account people who slip under the cracks, if you will. And I also think that part of personal responsibility is engaging in community responsibility. And uh, that means, uh, well, looking out for the people around you and taking care of the vulnerable when it's feasible. And um, an effective way to do that is to have a government that uses your taxes effectively and efficiently to uh, help the most vulnerable and to uh, offer services that are beneficial to the nation at large. So everyone's winning there. You're uh, uh, paying taxes and, uh, you know, you're undertaking a personal responsibility in, I suppose, paying your civic duty, if you will, but that is benefiting everyone and it is benefiting the, the community and the nation at large. Now, the issue comes when if the governments don't use your taxation effectively, well, then what do you do? But it's a, it's a double-edged sword there because then if more people are reticent to pay their taxes properly and are constantly trying to figure out loopholes and things, which is something I've never understood. when you If you earn over $200,000, bro, like just what? why are you trying to save that extra $300 that you can claim as a business? Just pay the fucking tax. I don't know. I never What's understood it either. Yeah. Okay, but... Totally makes sense if you're like, you know, on under 70 grand and you've got a family and things like that. But uh, yes, I, I think because this is a sort of, a, a, we generally talk about self-help uh, topics, I think the mentality you should uh, aim for is to take full control of your life. Because even if that is a placebo, if you, even if you don't feasibly have full control of your life, which no one does, there are certain narratives that you can feed into your subconscious mind without getting too hippie here. I think there's actually a lot of just objective truth to this. There's some narratives you can feed into your subconscious mind that uh, will manifest uh, for you in a positive way, even if they're not objectively true. So uh, certain things like if you feel like you're not, not, a, not a successful person or if you feel like you... Uh, can't uh, make it in a given uh, economic system or in a certain industry, you should start telling yourself, no, I, I will make it or I am successful, even if that is, I suppose, objectively not true in that particular moment. <clears throat> it then feeds into you your subconscious mind, which will then manifest in you acting in a certain way that uh, emulates traits and attributes that uh, would be... Uh, of someone who is, in fact, those things you are telling yourself. So I know you've You're not said, wrong. You know, You're not like wrong. If you say something like, you know, I'm the most successful comedian in the world. I'm the most successful comedian in the world. <clears throat> sure, there's a limit to that because you can definitely develop a big head and become egomaniacal there. But what you're essentially doing is you're then hopefully telling yourself a story so that you act in a way that you are, that will, you know... It, be efficacious in you achieving a certain goal. It doesn't mean you're telling yourself the objective truth, if that makes sense. And I think that relates to uh, the conflict there between personal and uh, collective responsibility, where you should strive and aim to take as much personal responsibility. But yes, realistically, uh, you, you, you also have, I think, a civic responsibility, which I think is personal. It's very personal, that civic responsibility to well, to participate in the well, to just be a member of the community, but to then also participate in the democratic process in a way that you think is beneficial for everyone and not just yourself. Um, I suppose that's my uh, initial thoughts on it. Yeah, definitely. 
I can't really add any more. I think also the point that you should focus on the individual. It's, it's inherently selfish. An inherently selfish ideology doesn't work. Uh, it's how the baby, how a baby sees the world, really. I really do think that the mark of a mature human being is somebody who is able to think about how they can assist others in the world or something else outside of yourself. And so, I think that a mature person, as Neil is sort of saying, just inherently accepts that they do have to pay tax, you know, and they're not really mad about it like certain other people are. Yeah, when when you just blindly look at uh, something like uh, lowering taxes in pursuit of personal freedom, okay, well, you need to add some nuance to that. All right, are my taxes being used in a way that I'm not happy with? Then, yeah, I want my taxes lowered because mm. I don't have trust in in the government to use them effectively. And mm. so they need to maintain that trust. It's a two-way relationship, mm. obviously. Mm. Uh, but if it's just a blind, hey, look, those taxes won't be efficiently used uh, by uh, unelected bureaucrats, which I don't necessarily disagree with because there isn't certain market pressures, but we're not looking at economic efficiency when we're talking about the public sector. We're looking at well social efficiency or social harmony more than anything. Mm. You shouldn't be thinking about, oh, it was, well, public hospitals aren't as economically efficient as private hospitals. That's not the point. The mm. point is there's a moral standard there where no citizen should have an ailment left uh, untreated. Mm. And that's just a standard we should live by, even if it's not the most economically efficient standard. And overall, it probably would result in a greater economic efficiency because there won't be a bunch of sick people who can't afford treatment. But it's, it's, it's an, it, you've got ideological blinders on purely just related to economic efficiency and nothing else. And there are other metrics by which to measure the success of a country. I think economic efficiency is important and it shouldn't be um, it shouldn't be something that's scoffed at, mm. but it shouldn't be seen as the be-all and end-all. No. No. I don't really know, because this is the endless question, because then you just start getting into the endless grey area of what government should and shouldn't be in control of. And that is, you know, impossible to answer. <coughs> but I've just got to say, like, this, the stats always seem to show that a well-administered society that has, like, a really strong bureaucracy does better because there's something that's pulling okay. it together, you know? When Even when I'm corrupt. talking about something like, for instance, uh, the Byzantine Empire, it took a lot to get rid of that. And the same with Rome. But the thing was that that bureaucracy, the reason why that empire took over an area that spanned across all of Europe, uh, Africa and Asia, huge, huge, massive land. It was just because they, they were able to organise themselves in a way that no one had been able to do. And then we found, you know, there's obviously ancient China, but the same thing. There was a very sophisticated bureaucracy holding it together. And when I say sophisticated, like, you go back and look at it then and you just think, fuck me. Like, the way that they, the things that they knew and how to, like, administer a country. It's kind of just, like, now except for without iPads. 
You know, wow. like the things that were the basic government systems that are there, they've obviously been expanded on, but the fundamentals of them were there back then. And before that, they didn't really exist. And therefore, you had societies that just weren't able to expand like those ones were. Sure. But throughout history, you could also find instances of successful countries and empires that maybe didn't have as expansive a bureaucracy, right? But did they last very long? A good example of that, I suppose, would be uh, not Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan's empire was massive, <laughs> gone, gone in a few generations. It's sure. just the bureaucracy just wasn't sophisticated. Sure. Ancient China, okay. for instance- Fuck, I mean, like, what yeah, okay, the there's West? dynasties that went up and down and they had falls, but really you've got an intact culture there for 5,000 years. See, well, when you just look at power through government power, that there's so much other, there's so many other instances of power that are being ignored there. So right now we have a lot of corporations wielding power and even now people who would have otherwise been conservatives are starting to say, hey... Facebook shouldn't have this much power. And one, I think you're being a bit in, inconsistent there. I mean, what do you want? Free companies to be free from, you know, government control? Or do you want corporations to not have too much power? You can choose you either stick to your ideology or not. <laughs> but uh, I don't think when you just look at things through the lens of government power, there's there's... Look, wherever there is power, if that if if there are corrupt pe people wielding that power, that will not bode well for the society they preside over. Whether that's corporate power, whether that's government power, whether that's a monarchy. If you have people who are very, you know, virtuous, competent, well-meaning people in power, regardless, I, I think, okay, not entirely regardless of the system, but I almost think the system itself is is not really as significant as, as the individuals who wield power within that system. Wait, wait, go through it again one more time. So there will always be people who wield power in any given society, uh -huh. okay? So whether that's bureaucratic state power or, say, corporate power, there are, you know, bi billionaires in America now who wield much more power than legislators. Mm. Then you have to ask the question, do those people who hold that kind of power... Do they have the interests of the country at heart? Do they have, uh, are they competent? Uh, are they well-meaning? Are they responsible? Are they, yeah, again, but well, not necessarily personal, personally responsible, but in, in just an entrepreneurial sense, but are they personally, personally responsible to understand that they wield enough power to be able to uh, impact the world in a very significant altruistic way and not just, continually expanding their corporation or hopefully doing them both simultaneously, who knows? But the point is, I think there's more emphasis that should be placed on the individuals who wield the power rather than the the system itself. I think if you if you ask me, hey, do you want to live under a monarchy or democratic socialism or whatever, you know, insert whatever the fuck the ideology is, I would ask, all right, who are the people that are actually going to be in charge? What are they like? And then I would I would answer that question based on what the people are like rather than the system itself. I'd probably hedge my bets and say, yeah, okay, one of the more modern ones. But if you asked me, if you gave me the choice, hey, you could live in, say, I don't know, what everyone loves the Scandinavian ones now. If you could live in a democratic socialist 
country, uh, but everyone in the government is a, a selfish, narcissistic cunt. Or you could live in a monarchy, but the king and and um, uh, the other uh, monarchs are like just extraordinarily altruistic, intelligent, generous, kind people. I'd have to seriously think about that. Mm. I may live in the monarchy because mm, mm, mm. I just think it's more... To me, the significant factor is like the uh, integrity of the people who wield the power rather than the system and how that power is distributed. Definitely in your life. Definitely. Mm. We're talking about the long sands of time, though, because, okay, you will have a good king this generation. What about the next? Well, did you say that with the bureaucracy then, can't you? You have a great, uh, you know, five top bureaucrats this generation, but what about the next? Yeah, that's what kind of like so, so. That's where it goes into like a system because then it's about, as I was saying before, once a country is sort of set, it doesn't really change its ethos. I really feel like the culture might, I suppose, create the system that it's there, but then once the system's in place, it kind of just self perpetuating. It's kind of this there's this great theory, there's this book that I've been meaning to read for a long time. It's about institutions and it's just figuring the the great leaders of history always figured out okay if i set the institutions i've kind of set the country it's exactly what the libs are doing now to our bureaucracy for instance they're just trying to make it private because they first off they just ideologically don't trust bureaucracies but the other thing is that well, they don't trust government bureaucracies. They love corporate bureaucracies. Exactly, which is why they're making them all consultants as opposed to bureaucrats. Yes. So you can get into this. Well, okay, wait, hang on. Can we define when we say bureaucracy? Are we purely talking about a government, government public servants? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I always thought the word you know you can have like a corporate bureaucracy as well. Yeah, you can. Like, if you okay. define it as a corporate bureaucracy, yeah, you can be saying that, like, the you know, the HR department and everything like that within it, you can loosely use it as that. Okay. But, you know, just in terms of, like, state bureaucracy, that's the case. So, they are doing that. They're trying to make the bureaucracy corporatized. And that is just having infinite problems down the track where, in fact, I think Michael West is going to release an article about this that they have really- white anted Medicare to the point that it will have to be privatized at some point in the future because of how much they've just silently siphoned away from these institutions. And that's what we're talking about with that. I think that the same thing occurs. So, this is an interesting point. And I think that this is also just because of the necessity of the time, but because the Byzantines didn't have the same reign area as the empire here, right? So, their borders were here and here, and that's where, like, most of the military conflict was under Rome. It would be constantly hitting from there and there, and so all you needed to do was move troops here to secure the borders. Once it just shrank to the eastern area, which is this, they had constant attacks from every area, uh, an extremely threatening environment, and as a result of that, the bureaucracy changed a lot, and you had a system which was really interesting, whereas this kind of one, you could get away with a lot of tyrannical leaders because it was just so safe for a very long time. The Roman Empire was just very- you couldn't fuck with it, right? This was very easy to fuck with. So, you had constant changing emperors. So, they still had a system of emperors, 
and it was based off the Roman one, but because of the time of the necessity around it, and also it's like a, a phrase now, it means Byzantine means kind of like a bureaucracy that no one really knows how it works. And it's like really shadowy and like all these layers that no one really gets. Uh-huh. That's what that means. And that was able to survive almost twice as long as the Roman Empire at its peak, but it was a constant hotbed of being attacked on every side. So, it kind of just creates this thing of, you know, it depends about the environment of what's going to be shaping how your government works. But I've got to say, it's a pretty interesting system to see that as opposed to most of the other monarchies where you can get away with a lot for a long time. Long, easy reigns. Here, it was just like, you're not performing. We're blinding you and chucking you in a monastery. We're giving this guy a go. Okay, but- that to me is comes back to what I said, which is that there was a culture, cultural ethos, ubiquitous within that bureaucracy, that was virtuous, and that's ultimately what I said I would be looking for. Whether that was a virtuous monarchy or a virtuous bureau- government bureaucracy, I would choose the virtuous system as opposed to the one, that, regardless of what that system may be. Well, okay, so. That is a bureaucracy working there, though. Yeah. So, it's not the person that you're interested in then. But you could, surely you would agree you could find plenty of state bureaucracies throughout history that didn't work as effectively as that one. Yeah. So, it's not just the bureaucracy itself there. There's other, it sounds to me like there was, well, there was a multitude of factors, but one factor there is that they were very competent and responsible and they held each other to account. Uh, and not all bureaucracies do that. Out of necessity, which is another thing that really shits me about Australia. This is the problem. I think it's, it's classic 4chan stuff, but the problem with having it good for yeah. a very long time is everything just becomes a bit crap because you can get by. Yeah. People, what is it? Oh, we're... <laughs> Hard times create strong men. Strong men. Strong men create uh, good times. Good times create weak men. (laughs) Weak men create hard times. And I guarantee you any man who says that is a weak man. (laughs) But seriously. It's true. I I count myself as a weak man. man. But at the same time, I've got to sit there and say, look, yeah, the fedoras ruined that phrase. It's not wrong. It's completely not wrong at all. Uh, Yeah, we've really haven't been tested and challenged. Basically, since World War Two, right? No. Well, I, see, now the point is, if you're saying, where do you want to live? Okay. As a white guy, I would like to live in South Korea or Japan. That'd be dope. <laughs> you kind of just walk around and everybody's just like, can I take a picture of you? And, you get and, sick of that, though. Yeah, I get sick of it here, I suppose. No, but here a it's a bit more preference. fucked. So, they're all drunk and like, you're a fucking legend. Like, there, it's just polite. <laughs> okay, but this is your unique uh, experience being famous here. Um, yeah. I guess if you would ask me to where I could live anywhere now here, well, like I said a few podcasts ago, I would take into account potential risks of the climate in the next 50 years and I'd either go to New Zealand or, well, that's, I mean, the other options are Russia or Canada or like Alaska. I was genuinely like, hey, Alaska man, sounds Alaska cool. sounds kind of cool. Yes. <laughs> but uh, that's still probably, you know what, if I was 27 in another 30 years, that's probably a much more... That's that's probably a far more significant factor as to where I'd move to right now. Fuck, dude. You know what? We're all coming to the conclusion um, of then. What? It's environment. That's actually what's dictating. Okay. Even in Alaska, I was reading this recently. Sarah Palin, 
biggest gun-toting yeah. Republican of the Republicans. When she was running Alaska as a Republican, you look at it, and apart from all the oil stuff, she was a Democrat. Why? Because it's a harsh climate. And so, you have to be a little more- You can't just do this whole like, yeah, yeah, free reign, just everybody gets to do it. You don't have that luxury. Same thing with the Byzantines. They didn't have the luxury of- affording shit emperors a long time on the on the throne. And obviously there's exceptions to this all the time. But the thing is that if you are in an environment that necessitates good governance, you're going to get good governance, I guess. So it's actually well, not even one huh? or two, right? Because it could crumble under the pressure and you could get atrocious governance. Yeah, but then what do you think is going to happen after that? Probably someone's going to take that land and govern it well. Hopefully Hopefully. I don't know. You'd have to, obviously, I don't know enough about history to tell you what the, what would, you'd know a lot more. Do you, on average, do you think when, when there's a continued threat of conflict to any given society, it, it forces a, a far more competent form of governance just by virtue of there having to be? I mean, that's actually competition then, if anything. Over the long span, because you can go back to that and usually what happens when there's pressure is you get a lot of internal struggle mm. and then you start getting civil wars and that's always going to drain your society. But I think that the whole point is that if you're getting civil wars, it's because your society isn't harmonious, which means that a more harmonious society- is going to take it. That's usually the lesson of history. Okay. Usually what happens in history is it's not so much the external pressure that ends a civilization. It's the internal pressure. That's always the nail in the is coffin. It, it's the okay. when the people start fighting amongst each other. But then you just say- You just weaken was, yourself. The, it was the external pressure of, to the Byzantine Empire that allowed- That made it, to, it run well. Yeah. That made it run well. Oh, okay, but, but then, then the then, points when they just went- you know, the, some selfish king was saying, I want this. And then another one was some general here was just being like, no, nah, I'm emperor. And then they'd fight each other and then they'd kill, you know, half their army just trying to figure out who's emperor. Yeah. Well, you've weakened your borders, haven't you? Yeah. That's what happened. Okay. Same thing here, uh, the, the huge death knell, because they used to own pretty much half of Europe and Africa because it was just the empire halved. That was the Byzantine Empire. Uh -huh. Then- they were constantly warring with uh, the Sassanids, I think it was at the time, which is just Persians. Yeah. They were warring with each other. They had this long 50-year war. And then the Arabs, who were nobody- It's actually what Dune is based off of. I didn't know this, but it's pretty much just based off of 700 Europe. But uh, th they didn't pay any attention to them all. They were just like camel jockeys that every now and then came in and just raided like a trade route or something. Uh -huh. But then Muhammad came in. He- merged all the Arab tribes together under the banner of Islam and then they became this like fearsome force that came out of nowhere, which is June, if you've seen the movie yet. Nah. But there's these desert people that no one gives a fuck about and then they find this chosen one that kind of just brings them all together and then they just kick oh, out wow. the owners, right? They fought amongst each other for 50 years, so both of them were completely weakened and then the Arabs under this new banner of Islam. And it's amazing because under the text, they don't even know what Islam is. It all happens so fast. They just take Egypt. They take Africa. They 
take these borders here, like, and then all of a sudden the empire went from like this to just this in the span of 50 years, really. Wow. Like just took everything. And it was because, again, internal, just wasting resources on one another, constantly fighting each other, new force in the equation, fresh, has all these troops, yeah. in it goes. Yeah. Okay. You need to be united uh, as a bureaucracy and as a community, as a nation. Yeah, there needs to be something inspiring you. There needs yeah. to be something there that's saying- This doesn't bode well for the West right now, does it? No. It goes like- But this is what I'm seeing when I look at history. It's kind it's of- cyclical, isn't it? It does go yeah. cyclical and Asia's always by itself and kind of yeah. chills by itself. But when it comes to the Middle East and Europe, because it's so close together, they've just always been back and forward. Do you watch the YouTube channel, What If All This, T? No. Oh, man, you'd love him. He talks a lot about this sort of stuff. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like the Caspian Report, but for history. Sick. Just I do like, like a that. a mad autist that does all this <laughs> alternate <laughs> history and he does theoretical. He'd say, like, you know, what if the Nazis won? Or what if uh, uh, he talked about prehistory a lot, which I'm, you know, I'm basically illiterate. Everything before Greece and, and Rome. I didn't know much about the Assyrians, but uh, his videos has definitely taught me a lot about that. They were very uh, brutal, to say the least. Uh, yeah. 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 Sorry, not the, the Indo-Aryans. Well, there you go. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but uh, all those civilizations before antiquity, you know, there's still, there's a good 10 to 20,000 years of post-agriculture human society that we don't know much about i mean people know about egypt but that's you know, about how it. many people know that much about mesopotamia did i ever tell you about the sea people no the early bronze age is so weird but all of these sort of early greek states mesopotamia i think was in there hittites all of these they kind of had this little trade network amongst themselves very interdependent states it was the early bronze age and isn't this so scary all of a sudden you see all of these societies collapsing and they talk about sea people people that just lived on ships came out of nowhere ransacked these mighty cities and then the civilization collapsed and Ramses, who was in Egypt, heard about all of these other cities and nations falling to these people that lived on boats. And so, he had his army wait down the Nile in reeds and then they all just came down the Nile and then he just rained bow and arrows on them. So, they were just in a trap, huh? Where were those people originally from? We don't know. It's such a terrifying thought, isn't it? A nation of boat people. And that's the whole- You know what's scary? That's Tony mad. Abbott was right. Tony, you know what they were? They were fucking refugees. Damn. That's what they were. Because the climate changed. They assumed that they were in like places like Sicily or something. They just went from island to island being like, do you have any food? No, I don't have any food. They have this really- Just like the Vikings of prehistory. Vikings are- well, it's history. It is history, but sure. we're getting close to prehistory. And there's just one thing that, like I thought, was the big giveaway they got was the Hittite queen sent a very short message to, I think, Ramses that just said, my people have no grain. And that was it. 
And then that was pretty much just the last piece of communication. And then those came. So, everybody was just struggling because of the climate change. And then these sea people just went and raided what little anyone else had left. Egypt did all right because it had the Nile. Just comes down to resources, hey? Every fucking well, nothing's time. Nothing's changed. Every time. Nothing's changed, has it? No. No. Well, it's just the resources have changed. Yeah, but uh, wow. So, it's like, I think, okay- at its core, obviously, environmental factors. Yes. That's what you're looking for. But I was always a bit dismissive of the whole point that you're always bringing up of like, you need something to drive a nation. But I think you're right. I Islam, Christianity, those things did bring about you need things that force. held people together for thousands yeah. of years. Yeah, I, I just can't see how this current tribalism, if it continues the way it does, how this is going to bode well for the West. But who knows? And you know what's kind of scary? And maybe it is, as I would think this, but it does seem to be an extension of corporatism and how corporatism is eating away at the state putting all of those resources into itself for very selfish reasons of just trying to raise profits over the next quarter. Yeah. But that is what is happening to culture as well. It is eroding and becoming extremely individualized. Yes. And so there's no, just like there's no unifying bureaucracy. Well, there is, but it's getting eaten away. It's the same thing with, like, national identity. There's that no, is getting eaten away. Yes. The cu- the bastions of uh, cultural institutions have been destroyed without thought of... Uh, Replacing it. Yeah. Yeah. You've taken away the, you know, the blocks from the Jenga tower that we didn't... That we felt like were obsolete, but the whole tower is collapsing. There was this comedian, huh? I was just going to say, in theory, it sounds great, right? Everyone can, is free to live the life they want to live. Yeah. And, and everyone is depressed. <laughs> Doesn't yes. that say a lot? <laughs> Doesn't that, just that fact there, that's all you need to know. Hey, we are the most culturally liberated, in theory, society ever. And these in are the theory. people that are the most obsessed with their identity. Yep. And then we are also the most depressed. I'm, I'm okay. We're probably not the most depressed, but we are, tr- we are becoming more depressed. You need purpose, baby. Uh, one other thing I wanted to say about personal responsibility is that you can, you can see, a uh, flaws in a community or you can see issues that you feel like need to be dealt with and i think the person who is the change they want to see in the world is uh because you associate a lot of people associate personal responsibility with i only care about me and i only care about my life no 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 that's that's a bastardization of what it actually is what it is is say there's the homeless person on the street, right? So the bastardized version of personal responsibility is like, well, I'm only responsible for myself, so I don't need to care about them. No, 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 no. Personal responsibility is like you take you take on the personal responsibility to care for your community. You don't export that to the to the state. You say, no, I will do that. We as moral individuals and as moral actors should be doing that. Mm. 
and that's where I think that's where a lot of people uh, misinterpret personal responsibility. I mean, this is again like a, a kind of a vague term that a lot of people will just use, however they see fit. But that's I suppose that's what I find frustrating when people, um, you know, unduly uh, castigate the mantra of personal responsibility by assuming it's the same as being selfish. That's not at all what it is. Mm. It's about taking responsibility for your community into your own hands as well. Mm. I've mm. All, I've said this. I've, I've argued that you, when you do your video about how, hey, you should change your super to this, hey, you should be investing in this, you're essentially telling people to take personal individual responsibility for one of the most significant existential threats anyone has ever faced before which is climate change but you are you are talking about personal responsibility there mm. you're saying mm. hey this particular government is useless mm. it's, a, mm. it's, a, it's you could argue it's a conservative way of looking at it it's like this particular government is useless at it they're not doing anything you are more efficient as an individual by doing it now a lot of people say well what's one person how's one person going to enact uh, significant enough change uh, to actually uh, be a determining factor in, in the trajectory of how the planet ends up? But no, no, that's not the point. Yeah, sure, one person is nothing, but you, you lead by example. You are able to influence the people around you. You are able to influence your community, your family, your friends. Mm. And if you influence enough people, well, it acts as almost like a, like a pathogen. It's a cultural pathogen. Mm. It then forces them to influence others, especially if you inbuilt, if you sort of build into that particular uh, behavioral code, you should be trying to profess this to everyone else. And that's what religion does so well, better than any secular creed. They say, hey, it's your duty as a Christian, as a Muslim, as a Jew to spread this. And they they all go on their missions and their, what, what are they called when they go to Africa and, you know, yeah, missionaries. Uh, that is a large part of why it spread so quickly, so vastly. Whereas in a lot of, um, if you want to call them secular creeds or whatever, they have the complete other, uh, they, it comes from a form of self-gratification, if anything, because you see a lot of people who are trying to uh, talk about their ideology online and compare that to, say, uh, a... a a Christian who says, hey, I'm going to be humble and I'm going to treat this other person with love. I know it always doesn't <laughs> end up that way. But, uh, hey, you know, you're forgiven for whatever you've done previously and, like, let me show you the love of God. Like, that not that a more... I know it seems cringy maybe to a lot of atheists and things, but, like, that is going to be so much more effective than someone online saying, like, you don't believe what I believe? You're stupid. You're deplorable. It's like, are you retarded? Who's the stupid one? Who's the deplorable one? You're never going to convince anyone. You're trying to feel that you're trying to just, um, you know, uh, you are just trying to enhance your ego by pushing people who don't agree with you down. And I suppose I'm getting off track here, but the but the personal responsibility thing comes into you acting in a way that you hope other people's will. It, it, Acting in a way that you hope people around you would emulate and you ideally want the perfect person to act. Yeah. So be the change you want to see in the world. That's the best version of personal responsibility. Not, yeah. oh, I'm only looking out for myself. But it's 
no, be, yeah, Gandhi, be the change you want to see in the world. To yeah. me, that's that's the best way I can describe personal responsibility. He nailed it. He did because how unpowerful is saying you should change your super and then someone saying, have you? No. Where does it go from there? Like yeah. you, you would all you would do is smirk at that person. In fact, I think that that is actually a step up from protesting. I think that look, yeah, yeah, everyone goes like, oh, things have happened in the past. Uh, protests, blah blah blah. Yeah, but like the climate rallies, for instance, what did it achieve? Absolutely nothing. What was the message Such of a it? Masturbatory, you, like, yeah, I can't. Yeah, it's it's really it just pisses people off who already disagree with you. And pisses people off that do agree with you. <laughs> yeah, that too, right? Because so, I remember going there and realizing, fuck, these people have no... I remember talking about this. These people don't actually understand climate change. They don't understand how it works. They are the exact opposite of the people that I make fun of that always say, um, you know, it's it's raining today, dickhead. There's no climate change. They're the people that are out there just being like, look, it's fucking hot today in August, you know? Like... They just it's the yeah. exact opposite human being and both of them, which is the whole point of what happened with it, is that they made climate change a cultural issue. And now that you've made it a cultural yeah. issue, you've moved people in. Exactly. People. Like no one's actually looking at the facts of it. It's just do you feel like you're closer to the hippie with the reusable bag when they go to Coles? Or do you feel person? closer to the guy with the ute? Yeah. Are you a good person or- the worst is that they've associated it with the, like, facts over feelings mentality, which is actually if you read a book. And look, man, when I was younger, I kind of uh, sort of just associated with that because I just associated all climate science with just, like, you know, hippie, a hippie romantic view of nature. And so I was immediately like, it's cringy, you know. But then when you actually read books about it, all they do is, like, explicitly – talk about the facts and the science. <laughs> There's actually no emotion at all. Whereas I don't know if you've read... Um, no, but it is also a failure of the movement itself to not sort of... Uh, they, they should be trying to, like, distance themselves from the more unsavory elements of the movement. Like the what it, the people doing interpretive dances in London. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? Are you retarded, bro? Like, who's... <laughs> you know, what, like, working-class English putting, guys are like, they- oh, mate, now that you put it that way, I guess i got to go green, eh? Yeah. Like, just a wee fucking dumb guy. And then, like, uh, there is a lot of other sort of loosely aligned ideologies with the actual climate science. So there is a, yes, there's, like, romanticism, if you will. There's... Uh, there is a sort of anti-capitalism uh, uh, that, you know, like there's there's a myriad of economic systems that could still, if you're ultimately just trying to like um, limit the amount of carbon and greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, well, you could, I don't care which system it is. I just want to limit that. I don't. I'm not tied to a given like economic system. And then like the comedian Ryan Long did a good, um, video about actually he was talking about the Black Lives Matter rally but he was like he was impersonating someone who's a deliberate uh, deliberately trying to sabotage the Black Lives Matter rally and he's like oh, we told people to bring you know the hammer and sickle flag and like the trans flag and the LGBT flag to the Black Lives Matter rally because it's like 
yeah, you know, like, what did they say? Yeah. Marx is popular in the hood or something like that. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. What are you doing? Stop associating all these things with the same, under the same banner. They're completely different. It's just, it's, it, it, man, it's, um, I don't know how you feel about it. Well, no, I'm, well, you've, ex- you've identified that, or actually so has that comedian. They've really identified what the problem was, and it is a huge failure of the environmental movement, there's two things. First off, you have to also point out that climate change is in its own field because there are, there has been tens of billions of dollars pumped into creating a PR feel around it and like a political movement around being opposed to it to create that culture of people that are just naturally opposed to yes. the idea of climate change and being you know, a scientific issue, right? It's, it's worked because for many, for a long time, and you talk to a lot of people who are older and you know what? Immigrants as well, man, because they kind of, when someone says like, hey, we got to think about the environment, a lot of people are like, oh, fuck. Like they just think it's like a, vegan about to lecture them Mm. that's what has been associated with it Mm. and look there are people like that who are just cunts about it (laughs) but at the same time if you actually read the books and then even the scientists they're like all right here i'm dealing this is the opposition to it let me like methodically break it down and tell you where they there's like here are the here's the percentage that this is the trajectory of uh, that the 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 climate is going to stay the sorry the temperature increase is going to stay on this trajectory. Here's the percentage possibility that it's going to be on a slightly lesser trajectory. Here's the percent they they just completely methodically break it down, and you know what they aren't always the best communicators because they're scientists. All right, they're just these autistic nerds that sit there studying things. They're not lawyers. They ha- they don't have a degree in how to communicate effectively. And to be fair, maybe that is a slight failure on on them, maybe, but they're not trained to do that. Well, it's also that all the time that they've done spending, like, breaking down boring data about the atmosphere is the same amount of time that, you know, a lawyer has sat around thinking about how to fuck someone over in an argument who's correct. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) So, you're not, you're competing with a different, yeah. Yeah, I think I've, it should, I've experienced it firsthand and then I just realised, like, I'm not going to fucking go down this thing, like, because I've not spent time thinking about how to debate. And then you come across someone who has thought about how to debate and you can be right and they will still win. They'll win on points. They'll win on points. Yeah, they know how to dissect it. They understand kind of, rhetoric, you know, all that kind of- Yeah, when you're just doing that sort of jousting, it's a bit- That's not a uh, helpful form of communication. That's just- it's. The WWE of intellectual discussion, really. Uh, but uh, I don't know if you've read... Have you read that Michael Schellenberger book? Because it was like when I was reading... I made a point of it. I think it was two or three years ago. It's like, hey, I don't actually... Other than what I learned in year 11, I don't know much about climate change. And I read a, a lot of... A, a few books. I didn't actually read that many, but I read enough to make up my mind. And then I wanted to read opposition to it as well. And so I don't know if you know that book, Apocalypse Never. He was a former Greenpeace activist who was then turned Mm. against the environmental movement. Mm. Mm. And have you read that book, Apocalypse Never? No, uh, but I do know, like, I've I've seen, there's this terrible thing in comparison to a book, but there's a great YouTuber. There's also this great thing called, like, Source Watch, which is that that guy- him talking about him being a founder of Greenpeace is, uh, look, it's a long time ago, but 
It's not true. He says that a lot because it gives him a lot of weight. Um, he was loosely involved with Greenpeace years ago, but he makes it sound like he was like the founder. Well, um, in his book, all right, so everyone associates the cl- like climate change is like the feelings over facts thing. All the books I read about climate change were all facts. And in his book, he's got all these chapters about like, hey, this is what would happen to this one African woman who lives in Rwanda or something if if they went off coal. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck about this one person who you're trying to evoke an emotional sentiment for me to be able to connect with her. Okay. You're, you, you're the one putting feelings over facts here. Mm, mm. It was a while ago since I read that book, but I mm. just didn't, it was, that one was more emotional and trying to tug at my heartstrings. Mm. Mm. Whereas the ones uh, that I read uh, that were just laying out the bare fact, a boring read, but, but, but that's what do you want, really. What do you want? It's a science book. Yes. <laughs> you want to be entertained? Look, I feel very bad for this one woman, but it's like there are 7 billion of us on the planet. You kind of can't choose the health of this, you know. The le- And then he was also trying to make it like this feminist argument for her. And I'm like, oh, dude, th- you're doing everything that the other – you. Uh, that is supposedly associated with the other side. Mm. You're taking emotional sentiment. You are um, not uh, uh, objectively measuring all the information and critically thinking about it. You're using this one little anecdote to try and gain um, emotional favor, which is very effective, by the way. That's actually how you win people's minds with emotion, more so than we talk about this on every podcast. But... uh, that actually pissed me off because I, I just couldn't help but thinking, man, this is supposed to be this, you know, the environmental scepticism or the sort of centrist part of that is supposed to be the they're, they're always the ones that are like, oh, enough with the, you know, the shouting and the yelling. We need to, like, think about this rationally. Rational and it's like, discussion. well, where's this, like, where's the this, rationality? Yeah. What's this, like, story of this one woman? I'm sorry, but I don't really care. I'm I'm sure that sucks for her, but there's not enough to convince me that the whole thing is a, a, bogus a ruse. Post, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> or that you should do nothing about it because it disaffects one woman. Yes, by all means, as uh, by all means, though, like, tell. I'm always. I will read. I will try to read uh, any book if it's uh, critical of the movement, but if it's also pro. I look just. I'll read it. Because I want to try and be challenged. But that mm. one was just, I just, I actually got frustrated reading that. Because, again, it just feels like, all right, you, you lack integrity here. Oh, yeah. Look, it's a case. It's it's classic. It's it's so classic. It just, you go back to the beginning of society, anything that comes to debate, that's how it always, was, always worked that way. That's such a it's it's it really does freak me out how old and like I don't know I'll, I'll I'll go back to talking about that stuff but the other thing that I was just thinking which is really good news about the whole climate change thing all I was reading was the headlines about uh you know uh Glasgow was just this massive failure uh so disappointing this is the end of the world you read all of those Man, I looked at what was agreed upon. Okay, it's not below 1.5 degrees. Now, this is, again, this is, we're, we're talking about political framework here because this is the thing that people don't understand about how complicated climate change is. You have to get 200 nations on planet Earth 
to agree to something with no way of enforcing it. Yes. You know? And you have nations that are going to benefit the most from industrialization also having to sign on to this. It's a huge, huge complicated problem, right? Yeah. Uh, it's impressive. Truly, I remember someone breaking this down, but they were talking about in, just in terms of diplomacy and how it works. There is nothing to compare it to in terms of how complicated this is. You know, treaties after World War II, nothing in comparison to this. You know, decolonization of Africa, nothing. The, you know, Africa is regional in comparison to the world. Mm. Basically just like state in, in the Australian Federation. It's a state. So it's just, you know, unbelievably complicated. What they have agreed to, this is incredible because they're always just saying nothing's happening. They got it down to if everybody agrees to their current targets, which actually, if you look at the trajectory of where these countries are going, they're not going across it fast enough to get to the 2050 targets in general. That's definitely true. What's also true is each year, the trajectory of where they're going goes just a little bit more, right? And that keeps compounding in on itself. And that's just going to exacerbate a lot faster with, you know, renewables and everything. But they got to 1.8. Obviously, what you're aiming for is below 1.5 degrees to stop catastrophic climate change. Uh But we're at 1.8 now. What a massive accomplishment. And the whole thing is that if you just look at everything else from what everybody's talking about of like, you know, either it's unnecessary or that this is a complete abject failure. The truth actually is truly in the middle on this one. If anything, it's closer to like this was a success, a massive success. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast by uh, with uh, what's his name? Tim Flannery. Yeah. He was saying, no, this is something that at least this is a, definitely a step in the right direction. Like, he definitely wasn't cynical about it. No. Yeah. That's sick. The other thing that we, everybody was saying is that, you know, the big goal is to try and keep as much forest in the ground as possible. That's the main goal uh-huh. of climate change. China has come out, and this is all you cynical cunts out there. China has come out with a think tank policy that is saying- what they're going to do with all the quote-unquote debt traps, which is just what every country does. But anyway, their debt that they've accumulated with countries that they've lent out to that can't pay the debt back, they were just saying, look, they are never going to pay that debt back. Even if you took all of their assets, they would still not be able to pay it back. Tell them to sanction off forest and then like- We'll just forgive the debt and just say like, and then China just says, that's National Park from now on. You can't touch it. That would solve climate change right there, right there. If they just started forgiving, if countries just started forgiving debt by saying, you can't touch that forest. And we've just turned that into a national park. So, it's like, I don't know. In terms of when it comes to climate change, I think actually- I'm nowhere near as pessimistic as I was about it over the last 10 years of my life. I think actually the world is getting its act together Mm, when it comes to that. When it comes to the spatial extinction, on the other hand, we'll see where that goes. But it's like it's a very interesting thought Mm. thinking about like Slavoj Žižek was saying this. Thinking about the world as being human beings are just so dominant now. Unbelievably. Louis C.K. had a really good joke about it where he said, I once walked into a Chinese shop 
and there was just a barrel of ducks' vaginas. <laughs> and I was just like, fuck, how dominant can one species get? Dude. You know? <laughs> like, we, like, you would have we, had to breed just, the ducks, huh? It was not that long ago we were getting more than Africa. Like, yeah. In, in terms of the evolutionary timeline, our progress, like, you, you kind of have to pat us as a species on a, on the back. We had no, <laughs> we had no real predatory, well, we weren't even the good ape. No. We were the shit ape. Yeah. We stood up. <laughs> yes. Gorillas were massive. Okay. Chimpanzees are nimble and they're strong and they're, what, four times stronger than us. They're pretty much just as smart as us from what I've heard. But we just, like, hedged our evolutionary bets on standing up and not being able to climb trees in a savanna where there are lions. So if you were betting 100,000 years ago, you would have been like, oh, these cunts will be extinct soon. And now- <laughs> We've like cut off, we've like destroyed half the Amazon. I mean, in a weird way, it's kind of like yeah, did this been like pretty fifty good, years? Pretty, you know, pretty impressive. <laughs> like, what the fuck, man? We got satellites and shit. Like, damn. Yeah. And also destroyed the Amazon because there's a certain type of burger we like. Yeah, and we want tables to eat our food on. Why? Yeah. <laughs> Why do we need this? We don't need this fucking table. No, and then like what would the apex predator was the lion, and now we feel bad when when yes! South African men shoot lions. We're like, no, don't do that. <laughs> it's like, hey, they bullied us yes. for like millions and millions and millions. Of <laughs> yes. We put them in fucking zoos, man. Like and we laugh are. At them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they like would have killed so many of our ancestors, like <laughs> brutally. Yeah, almost hunted us to extinction. Demolished our ancestors and now we're like, oh, they're cute. Yeah, the tables have turned, they're cute them. because they're from a distance. Yeah, now we feel pity. We feel pity for the predators that were- Unbelievable. We, they were predators for us for like millennia and now we're like, oh, okay, we, we should stop making them extinct. And feed them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck. We're dominant. Kill man. other we, animals for them. Yeah, we really are. We truly just dominated the world, bro. In fact, if any, uh, Slavoj has a very interesting take about how a lot of the, I don't know, we hate that term and I hate that term too, but the left actually has just sort of adopted the identity of being the opposition party and actually doesn't know how to win <laughs> because they subconsciously, I think it was him who said it. Anyway, tell me in the comments if I get this wrong. But um, they, and it's something I taught. If if you if anyone is listening to this, by the way, go watch the interview I did with Africa Brook. Uh, brilliant, brilliant mind. Um, I think the environmental movement has a lot of that, where a lot of people actually have adopted the identity of being the savior for the environment. And when they can't actually fathom the idea of what you just spoke about, that, hey, progress is actually moving in the right direction because then their identity it's slowly being eaten away at. But if, if tomorrow all countries were like, yep, we're, we're in in two years, we're moving to entirely to renewables and that's it. You know, no more species extinction. Like, the, for, uh, this is obviously not feasible, but let's just say theoretically that happened. Suddenly all these people don't have a purpose in their life. Mm. And what do you do when your purpose and your identity is under attack? You fight to keep that alive. Mm. You, you will do everything to mm. keep that alive. Mm. And as a result, I think that's where I think a lot of people also get turned off the overall vibe. And that's the correct word there, the vibe of the uh, environmental movement, especially at those climate rallies, because you think, hey, these are people who uh, have adopted this as a purpose, as a major purpose of their life. And, and for 
a lot of people, that's a very virtuous purpose. But you really have to look inwards and understand, okay, am I truly thinking about this rationally then? Can I, do I, have I fallen in love with the idea that, hey, I'm the, I'm fighting against the, you know, um, the evil in the world and bringing about the good. And then when maybe it's not as, you know, good, as binary as you think, and, and maybe it's a bit more complicated, like, hey, the evil side has now become slightly less evil and a bit more good. Are you then willing to actually acknowledge that? Can you objectively look at that and say, hey, like what you just said, um, I'm not as cynical about it now as I was 10 years ago. That to me seems like someone who's at least attempting to be very rational and objective about it. Mm. Whereas uh, the people, you know, like uh, I don't, Greta Thunberg or whatever, I can, I can imagine she's like ne- the sort of person that's just never going to be satisfied. Even if everyone signed on to like the the best they could possibly do and say in 20 years, no more carbon, mm. she'll still find a way to be like, See, it's not good enough because mm, 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 that's mm. her identity. Oh, yeah, and it's just been massively enforced across the planet, hasn't it? Yes. Because, Jesus, she's become a global celebrity off it. You're not going to shake that. It's kind of just like how Flavor Flav still walks around in Vegas just being like, Yeah, man, I had the big clack. Remember that? He's still wearing it. It's like, yeah, cool, man. Yeah, I know. I do cameo, $250 a pop. Well, you're doing well. Uh, <laughs> but that, I think that's I'm what happens. Cameo too. Um, I am? Only thirty bucks, baby. Yeah. No fuck. You know what? And that is very Aussie celebrity price. Unless you're like Shannon Noel. Yeah. If you're if you're a celebrity meme, you can probably charge a hundred, I reckon. But if you're uh, otherwise, you know, Scott Cam, for instance, thirty bucks. Come on. It's thirty, or maybe it's oh, it's thirty US actually. So that's. It probably is like fifty far out. Depends on the exchange rate. Yeah, yeah. not okay. All right, <laughs> might be. Yeah, well, I don't know, something like that. Yeah. Anyway, you should advertise that as yourself. Then just be like Neil Cole Hacker, half of Shannon Noel. Like, yeah, probably about right. <laughs> it probably That's is probably about right. Like to- the accurate market price compared to everything is in. Is I wouldn't be surprised actually <laughs> for every person. Every two people that know Shannon Noel, one person knows Neil Kohaka. That yeah, sounds about right. Uh, probably, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you're looking at a much older demographic, like a, a vaster demographic that would know him. Well, he, Australian Idol first season, fuck me. Like, what yes. was that, like 2.2 million? Yes, most night? parents and grandparents would know of him. Actually, you know what? It might be more than two, man. I don't know if it could be a ratio of like we're looking at three or four to one here. Because there was also, I mean, it was so big that even rival networks would do interviews with Shannon Noll afterwards. I remember Current Affair would have just been like, Shannon Noll, what does it feel like to come second? Well, it's just a privilege to be in it, you know? Like, that, that's another million there. And then keep in mind, 20 years. And, 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 those and then days- becoming an internet meme. Yes, exactly. And in those days, you were just a household name. You, you weren't. Famous to a portion of the population who knew you from social media, you just everyone knew that one person. And now that's the, exclusively the domain for sports stars, and even then, only some sports stars. Mm. So Ash Barty, okay, everyone knows her, but uh, who's an Australian singer that's come up in the last two or three years that would be a household name that everyone in the country would know? I, I can't. Think. Delta Goodrum, that's the last one. That's and then the last after one, that, yeah. they've got nothing. Yeah, I mean, there's some actors that would still. Yuk Hemsworths and Margot Robbies and stuff, they are household names. Hang on, hang on, what about this? Okay, okay, no. All right, I've got it. Tame Impala. 
No, my grandparents and my it probably my I don't think my parents would know who they are. Fuck, you're right. Yep, I stand corrected. It's just I was thinking about that because I heard a Tame Impala song being played in Pakistan. I was like, what the fuck? But I suppose again that was amongst hipster Pakistanis. Yeah, so it's no. just hipsters globally, which yeah. is just a larger demographic of one demographic. Nah, my parents would definitely know Delta, uh, Delta and Shannon Noll, uh, but they wouldn't have a clue who Tame Impala. They would be, uh, I don't know, they'd be like, I've heard the name, but they wouldn't. You reckon? Well, I'd maybe. count that. If they say, yeah. yeah, yeah, I know the name. Okay, well, then maybe they, my dad probably wouldn't. Okay, my grandmother, I doubt she would. But she'd know Delta and Shannon Noll, I reckon. So, we've got no one after that. Uh, like post-2016, nah, name a singer or a comedian. Jessica Mowboy. Post, she came up before 2016. Did she? Damn it. Man, 2016 really was like the, the year. that the Everything changed. changed. The internet um, took over. Yep, yep. Uh, it really is. It's Fuck, it is the most historical year of our lives. That and, of course, the 2000 Olympics. But, you know, globally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of a single per. Uh, yeah. I don't know, man. Definitely comedians. There's no more that would be a household name across ninety percent of the country. Fro- God, it'd be sweet being. I know we take it all the time, but fuck, it'd be sweet being Carl Barron. It really would. I've There's heard never going to be a Carl again. I've heard he's actually not a happy guy in real life. That wouldn't surprise me. Yes, because I would imagine that his life is just a repeat. Of the year before that, it would be Groundhog Year for that man. Yes, and then his tour would just be completely planned everywhere he goes. He's basically like the Justin Bieber of Australia. He wouldn't be able to just have a normal day. No, oh, it's Carl. Yeah, fuck. Well, however sorry you feel for Carl Barron, spare a thought for Jamoan. That must suck. Being the home brand Carl <laughs> Barron. And that's not a that's not a play on him either. Like I like Jim Owen and I've laughed at him a lot, but he just seems to be the guy that you can tell a lot of people go there and be like, "Oh fuck, I thought this was Carl." You know, I really feel like that's probably fifteen percent of his tales. <laughs> oh well, own it. I've heard I've heard he is actually a very happy. Well, uh, mainly due to other things, but he's a very happy, <laughs> very very happy man. We'll say that. Uh, <laughs> all righty well uh um, yeah you know what uh, yeah i'll just add that i i saw that he's doing this nice tour across australia with akmal in a van and i was like oh, fuck that cute. sounds good when you're 50 they are nostal- the nostalgia yeah oh man akmal oh, gen z wouldn't know who akmal is look him up he's brilliant he is brilliant and isn't it weird I was thinking about this when I was at the comedy lounge, but it was quite the moment. Even though you did have your star up there, and that was amazing, you were the last star. Yeah, there's no more. No Gen Ys. No more Gen Ys. That's it. It was just yours. I'm so proud of that. You should be fucking proud. Proud of that. In the comics lounge in Melbourne, they've got. Yeah, there's a big thing when you get either a photo or your uh, name on a in a comedy club, and man. Mm. That uh, the, the really absolute means a lot height. to me. It should. It yeah. should. I think getting an Oscar for a comedian is getting a caricature of yourself on the wall. Yes. That's winning best actor. Yes. Winning best supporting yeah. actor is a photo somewhere. And then having your name somewhere is 
what's another thing like uh like best producer or something it's like the one down there's your three bronze silver gold and like the fact that someone from our generation won bronze i'm just like that's fucking gold for us there's no way you're getting your like your your uh caricature up there i think the guy that is the caricature for it is dead now you know like it was a generation gone for those unless there's a new club that comes up or something yes but the fact that i got that that club was so good to me you're Uh, amazing they never saw me they gave me a spot before i was big on the internet because i did this thing called comedy zone it's a sort of you know it's a sort of showcase of up-and-coming comedians and it it, it was the classic pre-internet you go to the room you talk to the booker you're like Hey mate, I'm here from Sydney. I'm doing. Can I get a five minute spot? And he's like, "Are you funny?" I'm like, "I hope so." If all right, get up there, tore it down, fucking killed it, and uh, then I went viral. And they're like, "Hang on a minute, that's that fucking guy." They were the first club to let me headline. Uh, I headlined there when I was twenty. Uh, they flew me down, paid me the proper headline rate. It was never like here's an internet guy. It was like, no, this is a legitimate comedian. And so I was headlining a like, well, the, the literally the biggest comedy club in the country in terms of capacity. <laughs> but uh, they've they since let me headline like a couple of times there. They pay really well. They treat their acts well. Great guys. I cannot say in, enough good words about the Comics Lounge. Whereas a lot of the other clubs were very reticent to let the internet guy uh, headline. A lot of them I did eventually. The sit down in Brisbane, I headlined. Um, the one in Perth, the new one in Perth is really good. I think it's called the Comedy Lounge. I did a split headline there, I think. But then it got to a point where I'm like, oh, I don't even want to headline some of the other ones. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, Comics Lounge in Melbourne. And then to see, yeah, when my name was there, I was like, oh man, my heart. Fuck, that meant that, mm. that mm. yeah. And you should. Really what you're saying is it is the only New York-style comedy club in the country. Nothing comes close to it. Comedy store is close. You reckon it's close? It's changed a lot recently. It's it's, In terms of like layout, it's very much the most comedy club. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, but like I guess the vibe of it is changed But in terms of that feel, like, okay, some uh, guy with a gut with a dirty rag cleaning one of those classic beer mugs- that moment there just being like, can I headline? You funny kid, you get five minutes. Yes. There's nothing else like it. No. That- oh, bro, I've got the best story for you. All right, I'll end this podcast on this story. In 2013, I did the New York Comedy Festival. I was 19. I did the New York Comedy Festival. It was this Aussie showcase or whatever. It was me and Joel Creasy and a guy and Khaled Kalafala. How old was Joel at that point? Joel was, Joel was pretty young. He was He's like three or four years older than me. So, he'd have been... 22, 23. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And um, so we're doing a really good club in America. I think it was just called the New York Comedy Club or something. It's like a quite a famous club. It might not be the New York Comedy Club. It's one where like Seinfeld did a special where he sort of like talks about how he started out and he filmed it at that club. And so we're doing this comedy club. And I swear to God, it's something out of a movie, bro. Like this really old owner. I assume he's Jewish. I don't actually know. But he's like, hey, come here, kid. Let me show you something. See that? That's me with Chris Rock right there. See that? That's me, Jerry Seinfeld. See that? Ray Romano. And he's like, you got talent, kid. And he walked away. And I was like, holy 
fuck. <laughs> Everything in America is a movie, bro. <laughs> Far out. Yeah, that that's was that's a sick mad. moment of life. That was so mad. And um, yeah, that's like Isaac Butterfield with the British guard saying, "Like me dick stinks." That's yeah, you yeah. should remember that on your deathbed. No, I'll never forget that. That was like in terms of that, but that whole comedy era was is gone because the internet completely changed it all, and the clubs got totally ideologically consumed. At it, yeah, but that if but I was twenty years younger, I would have gone to New York and. Try to just make my way up through the club circuit that way, I reckon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it, there was that nobility there that just doesn't exist now. Oh, it was so much more romantic. That so way. much you, more you romantic. Know, you worked at it like you, you were poor. You were bohem- You were truly a bohemian artist. Yeah. 10, 15 years and you got your spot on whatever it was, the Tonight Show. And yeah, but that, <laughs> just this old guy. See that kid? Jerry Seinfeld, you see this guy here, Ray Romano. That's Chris Rock. That's me right there. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, you're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fuck. What a moment. Can and you-, you know what else? Because that happened so young, that was, as we said, everything changed in 2016. Little did they know at the time, but that was still the world in 2013. Yeah. It was dying. You know what? It was like once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah. It's that moment, that shift in media that the, you know, TV cowboys were going, but no one knew it at the moment. It was Mm -hmm. that. So, you really had like, you would have been one of the last people on earth to have some fat, short Jew sit there and say that to them. I would have given you. Yeah. He was like, I would have begged him for a fucking spot if I lived in New York. That's what you had to do, basically. Like, I don't even know a- if you had to beg because there was comedy clubs. Yeah, yeah, there was open mic. You did the open mics, and then usually the best open mic got a spot at the amateur night, and then best amateur. Yeah, it, it was there was a, actually a good hierarchy to it. There was a club yeah. in Sydney Put called the Laugh Garage, and that was a very blo- they all these clubs were like so blokey and just like the sort of bar that I don't know drunken fucking sailors would go to. Like uh, George Street or whatever. Yeah, yeah, in the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that was where I actually did my first. Um, proper spot after 18 because mm. I did a lot of competitions and stuff mm. and then I did their open mic and mm. then there were these people actually Ben Elwood was one of them they were kind of like not mocking me but they're like hey, yeah yeah let's see how you go like whatever the fuck like kind of ribbing me a bit if you will and then I fucking killed it and they come up to me hey look man when fucking managers come up to you don't sign <laughs> they're just saying all this shit. They're like, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And I'm like, holy fuck, one spot. Damn. Yeah. That's amazing that they took you under their wing. It was so cool, man. Yeah, I did so many spots there. Um, Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Man, and yeah, then a, a big thing that changed in the comedy scene was uh, sign up on the night rooms. So, the open mic previously, you had to book in advance or you had to go there and talk to the person. But then there was sign up on the night rooms. Um, I, think, I think it was my, my friend Daniel Muggleton who started the first sign up on the night room in Sydney and she completely changed the vibe because then you just have to get there. You have to sign up on the night first in best dressed and then a couple of those popped up and then there was no quality control because then all these comedians could get as much stage time as they want three times a week. And so they just do that for two years. They think I'm good because they've been doing comedy for two years to a bunch of comedians. They go and actually do club nights and they're not as good. 
So a few that was another factor. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Fuck. Okay. Anyway. I didn't know that little piece of law. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. I'm a I'm a veteran now, ten years in the scene. Yeah, it's really cool that you've been soaking it up with all of these grisly old dudes. But uh, look, again, it's something really magical about the comics lounge. And do you know what else it is as well? No one else really fucking gives a fuck. They do. Look, that's not fair. They care about it the most. They actually do have like a, a reverence for the art. There's there's yeah. like a real yeah. feeling of support there and... You know what else is mad? You know what else is fucking mad? They actually do live by the ethos of like, is it funny? It's yeah. not like they're, they're yeah. going to say like, we're going to disqualify you if you aren't funny. They're just like, yeah, yeah, you can you can have as many goes as you want. But like they they respect funny. Yes. They don't respect anything other than that. Yes. There's no other uh, factors at play. No. Are they funny? All right, we'll give them a spot. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Fucking love that. And that's where our shows are. So check them out. Always will be now that I'm there. I mean, yeah, I was I, I was just at some other place because I I booked there early. But like, yeah, dude, you just can't go back after that. It's very rare in the entertainment industry to find people that are even close to veering on middlemen that actually seem to care about artists. Other than just seeing, it's like it's such a trope, but yeah, just dollar signs, and mm. you can tell that's all they give a fuck about when they're speaking to you. They're not interested in you at all. Mm. Mm. That's the vast majority of people. Those guys aren't. But anyway, yeah. Shout out if you're in Melbourne, you know, go check. Go. They just do great nights from Wednesday to Saturday, so check them out. They do do great nights, and again, because they respect funny. When you go and watch the headlines there. Every time that I've been there, I've never gone out and thought like, fuck me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah, there's no, a couple of stinkers here and there no, and like a pile of eight, obviously, but you're getting some gold there. They um, definitely trust the old guys because they've got their veterans there that always are killers. Yeah. But then some of the, they, they let in new talent as well, but not to the degree that some of the other clubs have done and, and have kind of just ruined the product. But mm. anyway, I don't run a room. Uh <laughs> I sort of, I run a night. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, guys. And the funny thing is, as this podcast is going out, I will probably be getting on stage at the Comics Lounge like right now. Because what? Okay. This comes out at 5 p.m. The show starts at 7.30. It's an hour and a half in. Okay. So, I'll be getting on stage at the Comics Lounge in about an hour and a half. Break a leg, future Neil. Mad. Alrighty, yeah, knock him dead. Uh, Make thanks. sure you have a Red Bull. Yeah, oh, I will. And uh, you do good at whatever you do. I forgot. I don't know your name, but thanks for watching. <laughs> I don't know your names either, but uh, yeah. Thank you for the questions. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yes. Buy the CBD oil. Yes, buy the CBD oil. Personal responsibility is not just being selfish. Also includes. Community responsibility and yeah, nah, you should get wet when you see blokes fight. I think that's environmental. I think if we lived in a very hostile environment where resources were scarce, then what turns women on would completely change. And I don't think Harry Styles uh, wearing a dress would be hot in the apocalypse. Come on. Give us that. Yeah. Although 
doesn't that freak you out in apocalyptic films where you do see a guy walking around in a dress and you're like, how the fuck did he survive? <laughs> <laughs> True. He's got some Joker vibes going on there. Yeah. All righty. All right. We'll see you next time, guys. Bye.